Well, it is great to see you all back this evening. And as you already know, tonight is one of our nights of worldview. And our topic for this evening is cancel culture, discernment, and truth. And we are going to approach this topic this evening by breaking it down into three primary sections. But the information is so vast, there's so much that we are going to cover that we're actually going to do this over two weekends. So tonight is going to be part one. Next Sunday night, we will come back, and it'll be part number two. So here's what we're trying to accomplish, the three pieces. Tonight, we're going to get to part number one. That is, we will reestablish some key ideas that are absolutely important on each of our different worldview nights. I, I go back to these again and again because I want people to understand why we are doing what we're doing. What are the goals behind it? How do you develop a biblical worldview? All of those particular pieces. Then the second part, and this is where I will spend the majority of our time tonight, is we will explain cancel culture as well as our need for discernment and truth. We're gonna get into pieces like what you should know, why does it matter? Uh, how is it impacting the culture around us, specifically believers? We're going to get into some biblical connections related to the topic tonight. There's no way I could go through the entire evening just sharing a cultural idea without saying, here's some pieces that Scripture has to say on the topic. But I'm going to save the most robust part of our conversation, the, the clear pieces of how the gospel addresses each part of this, I'm going to save much of that for next week because even by the end of tonight, I will not have been able to get through all of the cultural understanding to make sure that people understand all that is at stake when we talk about cancel culture, the need for discernment, as well as our need for truth. So next week, we're going to reset the table. We will pull back up a couple of the different pieces that we've already discussed tonight, and then I'll give probably another 25 minutes of information about it, helping people understand the ramifications, understand the, the ways it is reaching into the church and in throughout society. And then we are going to get into how the gospel of Jesus Christ addresses each part of this and what a gospel response is supposed to be as a follower of Christ. So there's a lot to cover. And uh, on each of these nights, I ask, would you give me grace? Because uh, there's a lot of information I'm trying to get out in a short period of time. And sometimes it's hard to get all of your words together on that. So if I misspeak, I'll try to stop. But just let's have a moment of prayer and let's go forward from here. Heavenly Father, may you guide us tonight through this conversation. Help us to know what we need to know, see what we need to see. And Lord, may our hearts and minds be in alignment with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So what are a couple of these key pieces of information that need to be reestablished tonight? Well, the first part is a piece that's on the board. Now, let me just say this as I move to the board. I know that every time this board comes out right now, people are trying to take pictures, and sometimes they come out a little bit squirrely right there, and sometimes you can't see it clearly. But here's what we'll do. By the time this evening is done, we're simply going to roll the board up to the front of this, and right afterwards, feel free to take all the pictures you want. So use this as a time that you can kind of listen and process the information, take notes as best you possibly can. But... Worldview is how you see the world. It is the system of values, of thoughts, ideas that enable a person to process the events of life. That's worldview. A biblical worldview is seeing the world from God's perspective as it is revealed through Scripture. 
It is important that we understand that on the front side. A person who has a biblical worldview is an individual who their beliefs and their values have been shaped and they are ongoing supported by the word of God. Now, there are two reasons that I've brought up on each of these worldview nights as to why Christians believe or act in opposition to the word of God. The first is ignorance. They do not know what scripture says. We are praying that through the teaching of God's word, ignorance is going to be removed, that people will know this is what the word of God has to say on the topic. The second reason why people believe or act in opposition to God's word is disobedience. We reject what scripture says. That is going to be a peace between the individual and God. I am praying, I am hoping that when people hear the word, they understand God's perspective, their first thought is, God, I need to realign my priorities, my convictions, my beliefs with what the word of God has to say on it. Whenever we know what the Bible says and we choose to align with something else, it is always going to be dangerous, it will be sinful, and it's going to bring pain. There's always pain that comes when we cling to what God hates. Now, there are eight primary categories that shape a person's worldview. That is creation and environment, religion and spirituality, education and development, relationships and experience, culture and institutions, science and technology, economics and vocation, as well as community and government. The way our mind operates, those are going to be the primary influencing factors that help shape the way a person is viewing the world that is around them. All of that comes together to create worldview. Now, we have five primary goals that we're trying to accomplish on these worldview nights. The first of those is we want to inform believers. It is important as a follower of Christ that you know what's happening in the world around you, and you also know a biblical response to it. You understand what God would have you to do, being salt and light. The second piece is we are wanting to foster a biblical worldview. We are praying, we are hoping that those who are watching, those who are in these services, they will walk away saying, I want to know what God says and I want my perspective to be God's perspective. I want to see the world through God's eyes. I want to live with a biblical worldview. The third goal on these nights is to show the beauty and the relevance of the gospel in everything. You're going to see that even in what we get into tonight, the gospel is the most powerful piece that we have to address the topic of cancel culture, the need for discernment, and the need for truth. So I want you to see that. A statement that we share many times is the gospel is not the, just the good news that saves, it is the good news that sanctifies. You never outgrow the gospel, you grow into the gospel. And you're going to see again tonight, the gospel is what we need to address the issues that are happening within culture. Also, the fourth goal is to prayerfully seek to understand God's heart. My hope, my desire is, as followers of Christ, we want to know God's perspective. We, we want his heart. We want to see his will come. We want to see his kingdom flourish. That's my prayer in this. And then number five is to encourage believers to act in love. If believers walk away from these worldview nights with greater antagonism towards lost people, then I have failed on these worldview nights. 
if we walk away from these worldview nights with believers in a sense of self-righteousness and pride that we know what others don't know, I have failed on these nights. My goal here is that when we understand there is a greater level of love and empathy for those who do not know Jesus. It should be that it breaks our heart because it's those same things that break the heart of God. So what are the basic steps in developing a biblical worldview? First is actively pursue an intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Everything flows out of relationship. Second, study scripture contextually and completely as it relates to a topic. We need to know what the word of God says. The third is adopt God's perspective as your perspective. The fourth is if anything seems to contradict God's perspective, give him the benefit of the doubt, trust him, and then wait for clarity. There are going to be things in your life, things in my life, that in the moment I don't understand. I know what the word of God says. I just don't understand how it works out in that moment. In that moment, you're going to give someone the benefit of the doubt. Give it to God. Give him the benefit of the doubt that his character is trustworthy. His word is true. He will do what he says he is going to do. And in the process of doing that, give it time and ask God for clarity. It is amazing how often he brings clarity. Then the next part there is intentionally associate with and learn from those who are on the same path. That means the books we read, the podcast we listen to, the church we attend, all of those pieces are necessary to help us be moving in the same direction with other people who are on the same path. And then the sixth part of that is repeat that same process for the rest of your life. That's how a biblical worldview is developed. We keep doing the right things over and over and over again. So now, let's take the time to explain cancel culture and our need for discernment and truth. Now, this is going to be a topic that, once again, I often give disclaimers on, and this is going to be no different than any of my other disclaimers. But every time we get into a new topic, I try to say the same thing. I want to set the expectations on the front side. I am not trying to answer every question related to cancel culture. I am not trying to pull out every facet of this. Instead, what I'm trying to do is to lay the basic groundwork to give people a basic understanding, both culturally and biblically, of an important topic, and then at the same time, equip believers in how the gospel helps them meet the needs that society is facing. I want us to walk away with action steps. I want us to know the gospel is sufficient, that we can trust that the word of God is going to take care of these things. I also don't want people walking away from these nights living in fear. Okay, we do know how the story ends. We do know that God is victorious. We do know that he is going to accomplish his purposes and nothing in this world can thwart that. So I don't want you to walk away in fear. I want you to walk away with an understanding as well as these are steps, action steps to be able to live these pieces out. So let's get started on this. The phrase cancel culture is relatively new, but the idea behind it and many of the tactics that are associated with it have actually been present since the introduction of sin to humanity. 
In fact, here's a basic definition of what cancel culture is, and there's many that you can find online, but most of them will come back to something like this. Cancel culture is a social attitude that believes controversial speech and behavior must be punished through public shaming, silencing, boycotting, firing, bankrupting, and deplatforming. The result is that an offender's influence, their very presence, their overall reputation has now been canceled out. Now, this is more than just boycotting a company that you disagree with. This is more than somebody saying that speech is offensive. Uh, it, it's more than speaking your mind. It's more than voting your values. It's more than taking a stand for righteousness. You can do every one of those things and still do it in a peaceful, gracious, and a biblical way. Cancel culture does not have that. Cancel culture incites a mob mentality that demands that people are fired from jobs, disassociated from their peers, silenced of their views, and banished from public view. In many instances, personal information about that individual is leaked to the public. Information like phone number, home address, where they work, the route they take to work, their favorite coffee shop, many times even the school that their kids attend. And the intent behind that is that they're wanting to create chaos in this offender's life. Hackers many times will expose personal information. They take over social media accounts. They create digital chaos for that person. The cancel culture mob is encouraged to then stalk, to harass, to do whatever they can do to create this ongoing disrupting presence in that person's life. This activity is condoned by many as a form of accountability. Now listen, the current trends are representing a shift in power dynamics where those who have traditionally felt as though they had no voice, they had no opportunity, they had no power, they had no control, those individuals are now asserting both control and power in a collective way to get justice and to punish wrongdoing. Okay, so let's pause. We need to pause. Scripture 100% affirms accountability, justice, and punishing wrongdoing. No question about it. I'm going to show you tonight in the Word. The Word of God affirms those pieces. But Scripture does not condone many of the tactics that are currently being used within cancel culture. And we're going to come back to that and pull it out in a moment. So where did the current form of cancel culture come from? Well, there's a piece that kind of helps us understand this. That is, while the idea of canceling or shaming someone is as old as humanity's introduction into sin, and at the same time, while the term canceling has been used through movies as well as in music for over 30 years, the idea, the phrase itself, cancel culture, actually became popular in 2016. And it became popular through a number of events within society, but it was also one that was allowed to become extremely popular because of the rise of social media. Social media fuels much of the angst and much of the concern connected to cancel culture. Now, I said a moment ago, cancel culture represents a shift in power dynamics for those who have not had power or control in the past, and they are asserting power and control in a collective sense 
as a way to get justice and to punish wrongdoing. So the use of social media was literally like throwing gas on that fire. It it breathed life into this angst that was happening within culture. Social media gave everyday people, many times people who felt like they had no recourse, they had no opportunity, it gave everyday people the ability to share their thoughts about anything with everyone at any time. Thoughts, many times, that were written in a private diary Our thoughts sometimes that were kept within a small circle of friends are now thoughts that were immediately placed out for the world to see. And that's had both good as well as bad results. So on a positive side, social media can be used to expose corruption and bring societal pressure for needed change. That's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with society looking and saying something is wrong. We need to change that. But the ends do not always justify the means. On a negative side, social media can be used to create streams of unvetted information that has no concern for accuracy or due process. It encourages impulsive, emotional reactions. It shuts down all meaningful and necessary dialogue, and it presents no real deterrent for being wrong in your assertions or for outright lying about what you were stating from the very beginning. Social media, in many ways, has become a digital version of the wild, wild west. It's like anything goes. There's almost a vigilante justice that is happening. In fact, social media has been weaponized by the cancel culture as a form of digital vigilantism. Now, I need to pause here for just a moment. James chapter number one, verse 19. It teaches believers that we are to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. All because you heard it doesn't make it true. All because you think it doesn't mean you share it. And all because you share it doesn't mean you can share it any way you want. Christians are held to a higher standard. Now, I want to give three verses out of Proverbs chapter 29. Just write the references down. Proverbs 29 verse 8, it says, Mockers can get a whole town agitated but the wise will calm anger. Verse 11, same chapter says, fools vent their anger, but the wise quietly hold it back. Verse number 20, it says, there is more hope for a fool than for someone who speaks without thinking. Now I want you to just take those three verses and bring them together. Here's what that's saying. Stirring people up, inciting anger, speaking without thinking, That is foolishness, according to the word of God. Christians are called to walk in wisdom. We are called to a higher standard. And even when those people engage in those tactics who do not know Jesus, it's at least understandable. It's not helpful. It it doesn't move the ball forward, but at least it's understandable. They, They don't know Christ. They don't live by that same standard. But when those people who are calling themselves children of God, followers of Jesus Christ, when they follow that exact same example, it shows a lack of spiritual maturity and a lack of wisdom in their life because it is against what the Word of God says. 
Now, we're going to come back to that in just a few moments. There's something else that is driving the current version of cancel culture that we see in America. In the American context, cancel culture is the natural outworking of a post-Christian society that no longer affirms Judeo-Christian values. It is the natural outworking of that. It represents a return to pre-Christian or non-Christian ideals. Non-Christian cultures almost always operate with some form of what's referred to as an honor-shame dynamic. And if we understand cancel culture, you will see that is a dynamic at the core of everything that is going on. So I'm going to kind of give a piece that if you understand the basic breakdown that we're about to go through of cultural, I guess, cultural dynamics, if you understand this basic breakdown, it will help you understand much of what you read within the news right now. Things that no longer make sense. If, if you're over the age of 40 and you're thinking like, this world is rapidly changing. This is not the America I grew up in. I don't understand what's happening, but something is big that's happening. If, if that's where your mind is at, if you understand these three main types of cultural dynamics, by the time it's done, you will understand more of what's going on. Here's what I mean by that. According to sociologists, this is believers, unbelievers, it really doesn't matter. They're going to see the same three basic dynamics happening in cultures around the world. The first of those is what's referred to as an innocence guilt culture that is primarily in the West. This is a type of culture that focuses heavily on individual responsibility where people who break the law are considered to be guilty and those who have been wronged seek justice or they offer forgiveness as a way to reconcile or rectify the situation. That is an innocence guilt culture. The second of those is called an honor-shame culture. That is primarily in the Middle East and throughout much of Asia. This is a type of culture that focuses heavily on community conformity, where people are shamed for not fulfilling group expectations and those who have been wronged seek to restore their honor by pressuring or shaming the offender back into conformity with the rest of the group. That is an honor-shame culture. And then there's another piece. It's called a power-fear culture. This is primarily through southern part of Africa, much of South America, as well as many of the smaller island cultures. This type of culture focuses heavily on fear and harm that is associated with evil spirits. It's an animistic worldview, and the people seek to restore a balance in their life by pursuing power over the spiritual realm, usually through some type of incantation or magical ritual. Now, this does not mean that everyone in each of those areas participates in that type of a culture or that dynamic. But from a sociological perspective, those are the views that are prevalent within those geographical regions. Now, in case you're wondering, the vast majority of the unreached world lives in an honor-shame dynamic. It's called the 1040 window. It stretches right through the center band of what's taking place all the way around the world. Much of our world lives in this honor-shame dynamic. And in case you're wondering, the gospel is perfectly designed and positioned 
to reach people in each of these three cultural dynamics. Next week, we're going to get into that. I'm going to show how the gospel itself, how it's presented differently within different cultures. Same truths, but it's powerful to see the way that missionaries and those engaged in different cultures, they will emphasize different passages because they know the dynamics of the culture that they're trying to reach. Now, I said a moment ago, if you understand those three pieces, those three dynamics, it'll help you understand much of what's taking place in America right now. Here's what I mean by that. Historically, America has been defined as an innocence guilt culture. Historically, we have placed heavy emphasis upon individual responsibility, upon personal rights, the intrinsic value of personhood, law and order, the necessity of truth, and a legal system of due process that seeks to punish offenders and bring justice for victims. That has been so much of the cultural dynamics that have taken place in America. Now, when those values are upheld as a, an American, as those who grew up in this culture, we believe that it, the society functions better. It allows people to be able to flourish. Now, in the past, ours was a culture, ours was a country that was in many ways almost a standard bearer for the phrase, a person is innocent until they are proven guilty. Okay, that was very much a part of the system we operated with. You'll even notice how some of the original lines in our Declaration of Independence speak to each of those different pieces that I just mentioned. That is, we hold these truths to be self-evident. There's an important emphasis placed on truth, that all men are created equal. That, that is, there is intrinsic value within personhood that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. There is that individual personal rights. It's mentioned right there that among these are life, liberty, in the pursuit of happiness. There is an individual responsibility that comes with that. You, you can see so much of that even in our founding documents. Now, the question is, have we always lived up to those values? Not even close. No, we, we would be foolish to say, yes, those are our values, and we've done great at all of that. We, we've done great at some, and we have been very poor at others. There have been dark moments in American history. There's clearly been instances of injustice and breakdowns in due process and problems that have happened within our judicial system. But the question is, are the values themselves still good? I would assert, yes. Individual responsibility is good. It's affirmed throughout Scripture. Personal rights, man, we are blessed in this country. Personal rights, the freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom of assembly and press, and the right to petition government, all of those are wonderful rights. I, I thank God for those rights that have been given to us. The intrinsic value of personhood, that is, Anyone, regardless of age and gender, of socioeconomic status, of ability or disability, everyone has intrinsic value before God. It's a part of the imago Dei, created in the image of God. That's a good thing. Law and order are a good thing. It's that dynamic that allows people to flourish and families to be safe and for civilized life to be able to happen. It's a good thing. A legal system that operates with due process, where it punishes offenders and it brings justice to those who have been victimized. That's still a good thing. You know it's a good thing because it's literally the cry of what people are saying is not happening in some cases. 
They're saying, this is what we want because sometimes the system has been broken. It's good ideals. But for people who look at those and say, those are good ideals, that's the reason cancel culture can be so confusing. Because for 200 or so years, the American society has in many ways been largely insulated in this protective cultural bubble in which there is at least a legislative framework to help assist in those values. And for us, the idea many times that, that somebody else would not hold those same values, that just seems foreign. But here's the thing. Much of the world's population does not hold those same values. They do not have those same rights. In fact, what we're seeing right now is a clash of worldviews. What we're seeing right now is more and more of the innocence, guilt, culture that has primarily determined American values is now being replaced with guilt, shame culture that has come from the East this direction. Current research indicates that only 4% of the American population has a biblical worldview. Our country is rapidly becoming a post-Christian society that no longer affirms Judeo-Christian values. As I shared a few moments ago, non-Christian cultures almost always operate with some form of an honor-shame dynamic. There's always going to be this heavy emphasis upon community conformity. That, that the group has to be together. Those who step out of line with the current values of community are then very quickly shamed back into compliance. So as you watch the news, as you read headlines, I want you to watch and listen for words of conformity, collectivism, as well as community. Here, here it is. Individual responsibility, personal rights, truth as we know it, is being replaced with these phrases. This is for the greater good. It's for the common good. It's for the benefit of all. It's for mutual benefit. It's for the purpose of inclusiveness. Okay, listen. All of those things are not bad. The Word of God speaks of the importance of community. The Word of God speaks about the value of relationships. It's not that everything connected to that is bad, but the issue is here's where things get sticky. The further you move towards an honor-shame dynamic, the more people are judged entirely on whether or not society approves or disapproves of them. And approval comes with adherence to the collective view and all other issues now become secondary to do you agree with the primary pieces. In that type of society, what you do, how you do it, who you hurt, the aggression you show, the laws you break, the damage you cause is all secondary to are you adhering to the cultural talking points and are you sticking with the big narrative? In honor-shame cultures, oh, please hear me, this is so important. And you can study it for yourself. If you don't believe me, just study it for yourself. Look for honor-shame cultures and look at the pieces that define it. In honor-shame cultures, the community defines everything. Social capital fixes anything. Aggression restores honor. Words define status. 
and acceptance conveys compliance. You'll see it all across the board. So let's pause for another moment. I said a few minutes ago that part of the cancel culture mindset is to bring about accountability, to seek justice, and to punish wrongdoing. I also said scripture supports all of those. But scripture does not support many of the ways those ideas are being carried out. So how does scripture support the idea but offers a different path in moving towards that idea? So let's talk about accountability for just a moment. Scripture reminds us each person will give an account before God. Romans chapter 14, verse 12. Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37. That is ultimate accountability. Luke chapter 17, verse 3. It tells us, pay close attention to our own actions because if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. There is a type of Christian accountability. There's biblical community that brings accountability. Romans chapter 13, verse 1, it says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. That is a societal accountability. So does the Bible support accountability? Yes, ultimate accountability. Accountability towards believers. Accountability towards society. Yes, it's there. But listen to this. Write these references down. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. It teaches that God's people are to learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. That's in the word of God. Amos chapter 5, verse 24, it says, let justice roll down like waters. Proverbs 31, 9, it says, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. God's people should be some of the greatest advocates on the planet for justice and doing what is right in helping those who have been oppressed. It says, open your mouth and judge righteously. That's in the word of God. Now, let me say, one of the reasons cancel culture is so loud and so upset and so aggressive is because the church has lived with our head in the sand and we've acted like everybody else can do their thing as long as we're happy in our bubble. And so right now, we're getting some pushback on that. Where the church has been called to be advocates, we've been silent. We can't be silent about these things. If the church doesn't show the path of God in righteousness, don't get upset when the world shows the path of aggression in unrighteousness. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, it says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now, you're gonna, that's just one of hundreds of passages that speak of the fact that God is saying we need to punish wrongdoing, punish sin, punish evil. It's, it's there. So biblically speaking, it's clear. God's heart is for accountability. His heart is for justice. His heart is for punishing wrongdoing. And if that's God's perspective, then if you want a biblical worldview, then his perspective needs to become our perspective. All right? Now listen, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is the place where our definitions and our words and our basic understanding of these terms is where the church goes in one direction and the culture goes in another. 
The cry of culture is often, we want justice. The cry of God is, I want justice. It's the same word that's being used. But the only way to truly understand justice is to understand it through the lens of God's word. That's it. And I'm going to give you the biblical references for you to see this for yourself. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 5. It says, evil men do not understand justice. But those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Did you get that? It's only in seeking God and knowing him that a person even understands what justice is. That's not my thoughts as Paul Godhart. That's what the word of God says. The world and the church use the same term, justice. But how do you define justice? What is justice? Who determines justice? How is justice meted out? Like all of those have to be defined and described within the parameters of scripture. The book of Judges, if you'll remember, shows exactly what happens when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. It does not lead to justice. Instead, it leads to chaos, it leads to anarchy, and it leads to greater levels of injustice. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 7, it says, A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. Did you get that one? <laughs> apart from knowing God, apart from righteousness that comes from him, we don't even understand what the rights of the poor should look like. If you want to stand up for the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, that's good, that's biblical, that's right. But a wicked person doesn't even have a filter to understand it. And not only do they not have the filter to understand it, it gets worse from there. Proverbs 17, 23 says, the wicked take secret bribes to pervert the course of justice. In other words, instead of them bringing justice to the poor and to the oppressed, wicked people only add to the problem of injustice and they increase the level of oppression. Character matters. Relationship with God matters. How we define terms, it matters. And by the way, again, the church has been largely silent on many of these issues. And as a result of being silent on these things and not helping people understand the difference between justice according to God and the call to help the oppressed, instead of that happening, we've just entertained ourselves to death for 40 years. It's like, how can we make ourselves happy? How, how do we keep everybody content? When you lose sight of the mission that God put us out to, that is to reach the world, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to offer good news to the hurting, to the oppressed, to set the captives free. When we lose thought of that, our mind turns inward and we come off of mission and we get really, really confused about basic things. That's why Christians have to stand with God and seek righteousness. The river of justice only flows through the throne room of God. If we don't know him, 
we don't see where justice is going to go. Listen to the beautiful way God describes this balance. Proverbs 17, 15. The Lord hates these two things, punishing the innocent and letting the guilty go free. That is accountability and justice and punishing wrongdoing, beautifully packaged together. Proverbs 18, verse 5, it says, It is not right to acquit the guilty or deny justice to the innocent. God is clearly saying it's wrong to let the guilty go free and it is equally wrong to deny justice to victims. That's God's word. That's God's perspective on this. So in a culture that is fast on sound bites and low on accuracy and heavy right now on shame, Proverbs chapter 18 verse 13 offers solid biblical advice for every believer. Spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. Okay? If we don't wait for the facts, if we don't seek the truth, if we make snap judgments, if we live with this ready, fire, aim mentality, we are only adding to the problems that culture is already seeing. Christians are to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Now, if we follow the path of Scripture, here's what you'll discover. We're rarely going to be the first people to post news that is controversial. Rarely. We're rarely going to be the ones who are inciting anger in crowds and and getting people agitated in that moment. It's not going to happen because that's not the path that God has called us to. And and at that moment, many times when many people in the world are already out saying, this is what's happening, they're posting this on social media, and they're, they're making bold declarations without all the facts, that's when the believer is still processing information. They're still seeking truth. They are still prayerfully saying, God, give me wisdom to understand what is going on. They're still verifying sources and then when the facts are in and when the picture is clear, that's when the church of Jesus Christ needs to boldly stand for righteousness and justice and for truth. But if you jump out before then, then many times you've got to go back and say, I'm sorry, I didn't wait for the information to come in. I was a part of the problem. We don't need that. The church needs to be the one paving the way in a correct way. So let me pause for another legitimate question. Is there ever a time to publicly call someone out, to boycott a company for what they're doing, to disassociate from a person or an organization because of deep disagreement? The answer is yes, of course. And here's the thing. As believers, We're called to be salt and light. We are called to stand for truth. We're called to fight injustice. We are called to encourage righteousness. We're to be a voice for the voiceless and the hurting and the helpless. We're we're called to stand for biblical values, even if those are unpopular. We are representatives of the kingdom of God, even if people hate us. But even in those moments, we are called to temper our emotions. We are called to direct our passion for truth and justice while still treating people with respect, loving our enemies, being gracious in our speech, and seeking a path 
of redemption and restoration. Gospel people are always looking for redemption. They're always looking for how can this be made right. Cancel culture on the other side. It's far beyond just standing for convictions and boycotting groups. Cancel culture aggressively and hatefully retaliates against speech, behavior, or thought that has been prejudged as offensive. In cancel culture, people are publicly ostracized and shamed. Reputations are ruined without all of the facts. Careers are destroyed even when there have been no laws broken and even when poor behavior has not been verified. Cancel culture does not align with the path of wisdom and it has no heart for the claims of the gospel. So let me provide a final point about the origins of where cancel culture comes from. Cancel culture is a part of the unholy child of two other equally dangerous ideologies, political correctness and postmodernism. And let me define what I mean by each of those. Political correctness is an attempt to minimize social and institutional offense through policing speech and thought, forcing the use of certain words and banning the use of other words. That's the idea of political correctness. Postmodernism asserts that all truth claims are subjective, that truth is a matter of preference and tolerance is promoted as the supreme value. Ironically, the more tolerant a culture is said to become, the more intolerant that same culture is for anyone who disagrees with those values. Now, if you want a few examples of what's happening in cancel culture, and by the way, I have purposefully gone through and given the bulk of these examples that have nothing to do with believers. And the reason I'm doing that is because I don't want believers to walk away from these two nights thinking that somehow the church is the only ones who are facing problems on this. this. This is hitting people who are widely a part of mainstream culture that don't have Christian values. They're secular in thoughts and ideas. But here's just some of those that have happened recently. On December the 6th, 2018, West Point, Virginia, the school board overseeing West Point High School voted unanimously to terminate the employment of a French teacher by the name of Peter Vlaming for refusing to use a transgender student's preferred pronoun, citing religious reasons. Although Vlaming was well-liked by his students and consistently accommodated the transgender student by using the student's preferred name instead of even the student's given name, avoiding the use of pronoun altogether, Vlaming was ultimately fired for what he could not say according to his Christian values. That's one example. In 2020, many called for the canceling of one of the world's most famous and popular authors, G.K. Rowling. She is the one who authored the Harry Potter series. She is by no means a defender of biblical values, but she had the audacity to speak out and to defend the reality of biological sex and say men are males and women are females for not towing the culturally correct political line of transgenderism 
Rowling was blistered on social media and suffered waves of harassment and cancellations. In January 2021, Twitter locked the account of Daily Citizen, which is a magazine that is owned by Focus on the Family. What did they do that was so wrong that caused this offense? Here's the the post, and I'll give it to you exactly as it was. On Tuesday, President-elect Joe Biden announced that he had chosen Dr. Rachel Levine, Levine, I'm not sure about the pronunciation, I don't want to be disrespectful, to serve as Assistant Secretary for Health at the Department of Health and Human Services. Dr. Levine is a transgender woman that is a man who believes he is a woman. End of quote. That was the tweet. Twitter proceeded to send Daily Citizen an email posting and pointing out the fact that repeated violations may lead to a permanent suspension of your account. On September the 4th, 2021, John Gibson, CEO of Tripwire Interactive, a video gaming software developing company, tweeted on how proud he was that the U.S. Supreme Court affirmed the Texas law banning abortion for babies with a heartbeat. He was quickly canceled by his company. Gibson's tweet, it drew fire from social media, and the CEO found himself without a job two days later when Tripwire announced that the company was moving forward with a new interim CEO. In 2022, Joe Rogan, world's most popular podcast, nearly 13 million subscribers, was the target of mainstream and social media cancellation because of comments he made regarding COVID-19. There were instant calls for him to be canceled. There was instant calls for the boycotting of any business that was associated with his program. And there were instant calls that his First Amendment rights should be limited. Now, I know I'm about to make some people mad when I say this, but I I need to say it. Even if you don't like what someone says, freedom of speech protects what you don't like as well as what you do like. The same freedoms that give a person the right to share things that we would consider to be unbiblical are the exact same freedoms that give us the right to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to preach the word of God, and to stand up for the marginalized and the oppressed in society. It's the same rights. We have to be careful as Christians that in our speech, We're not calling for the exact same cancellation as what we are saying is now being pushed upon us. Here's the facts. The U.S. is becoming increasingly more non-religious. It is increasingly moving away from Judeo-Christian values. It is increasingly becoming more intolerant of biblical teaching. To be a Bible-believing Jesus-following, gospel-teaching Christian in 2021, regardless of how loving and kind and compassionate and caring you may be, you need to know right now, those are the very things that will likely get you, your family, your church, your Christian school, your podcast, your Twitter account, your life canceled by society. It's not just Christians but it definitely is increasingly coming towards believers. 
as culture moves more and more away from biblical values, as honor-shame dynamics replace guilt-innocence culture, those things will become more and more prevalent. Now, I said at the beginning, I don't want you to walk away discouraged. I don't want you to walk away living in fear because the Word of God completely addresses how the believer is to respond. And by the way, one of the reasons we don't have to walk in fear in this is because for the last 2,000 years, much of our world has been living with that exact dynamic, and believers have thrived. The church has grown. The kingdom has expanded. The word of God has gone out. Truth has been upheld. We, we don't have to run from these things. We just need to mentally prepare for the fact there's a shift coming in our future. So that's the first part tonight. Come back next week and we will get into the second part of this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, may we walk and live and act in a way that represents you well. May our hearts be moved by the things that move your heart. May there be integrity and consistency between our beliefs and our behaviors. And God, would you equip us for the world that we're living in right now and equip us for what we will be facing 10, 20, 40 years in the future. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful week. See you this next Sunday.